It's time for the Contempo Coding Podcast. Discussions, knowledge, and insight to help you succeed in the medical coding industry. And now, here's your host, Victoria. So today I have a special guest. I brought on Sam Lipolis. She is a telehealth consultant and a trainer that specializes in video visits and remote patient monitoring, e-consults, and all aspects of virtual care. So she has implemented telemedicine for 10 years in five different states across tons of specialties and has trained hundreds of clinicians with her proven process for success. So thank you so much, Sam, for coming on today to talk to my audience about telehealth. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So we connected probably, I would, I would say maybe a year, year and a half ago through LinkedIn and really admired each other's work. So it's easy for people that are probably looking at you now and seeing how comfortable you are talking on camera and how you've gotten to be such an expert in implementing telehealth. But what is your backstory? Like, how did you get to where you are today? That's kind of, that's funny. So the thing is, is I actually came into healthcare 11 years ago, only in telehealth. So I wasn't comfortable in this space before that. And my career number one was actually uh, expedition travel. So I worked in tourism for a long time. So they really had nothing to do with each other, except I make the joke that uh, when I started working with uh, telehealth with doctors, My previous job, because I worked in expedition travel, I worked on very small cruise ships. And so I reported to the captain and I always joke that working for doctors and working for captains are like very similar. So coming into healthcare and, and having like hierarchy and real set structure made Mm -hmm. a lot of sense to me. And, but in terms of the camera stuff, It's because I came into healthcare doing telehealth. So Mm -hmm. I ended up having to be on the camera just all the time, testing, figuring things out and becoming really comfortable with it. So it's really just been practice, not, not that I'm a natural or anything like that. Okay. That's very, very interesting. So I, I love that story. And I think it's interesting when people just make that leap from into healthcare from something that's completely unrelated, but you can always find, it seems like some little aspects that are, that are going to carry over. I've, I've had so many people that, you know, they're starting out into healthcare and they're like, oh, well, I did before this, I was working in a uh, boutique with, with women's clothing. How am I possibly going to take any aspects from that into healthcare? And it's like, well, you're, you're used to doing customer service. You're used to having probably processes that you have to implement. There's always something that's going to carry over from industry to industry. That's super true. And the thing is, part of the reason I knew about health, uh, knew about telehealth is my sister's a child and adolescent psychiatrist. So she's been doing telepsych for like 15 years. And so it was something I knew about. And then I was at a conference and I heard a Kaiser physician talking about telehealth and I was in grad school at the time. So I just went up to him after the conference and said, oh, hey, I'm in grad school. So I'm pretty inexpensive, (laughs) you know, like, um, do you need an intern? Because I'm really interested in telehealth. And he said, oh yeah, it's good timing. And so I helped implement the first telemedicine program for Kaiser Colorado. Oh, that's fantastic. So what degree was it that you went to school for? Uh, my grad school was a master's of public administration. And okay. originally I thought, you know, I'll go out in the world and do like international development. That right. was actually my goal going from like travel to international development made a lot of sense. Uh, but then while I was in school, I found telehealth and it's just been so cool because you get to work across all different kinds of specialties, all different kinds of experts. So it's mm-hmm. been a good fit for my personality. 
Now, do you typically still travel a lot or at least probably maybe not so much in the past year, but have you typically been traveling a lot still just going to implement telehealth to like, do, I, I don't know, maybe do tech support or, or work at the practice level? Yeah. So when I worked for health systems, because I spent 10 years as a telemedicine director for health systems. Yeah. We traveled a lot because for example, uh, like a, a Colorado system, we were supporting and, and partnering with organizations all throughout Colorado, Wyoming, Kansas. And in the last year, no, obviously, you know, as you mentioned, not so much, but what's been interesting is that in the last year, and I'd already been feeling this a bit pre-pandemic was that there's a lot of value in training remotely Mm -hmm. because it actually forces everybody to use the tools. When you're there standing beside them, you have to really push them to use it because they want you more like to show them how, which doesn't necessarily help them realize what kind of challenges they would come come up with. So I have actually found the remote training to be uh, very, very valuable. And in my business now, I do it all remotely unless we really need something because I feel like it does really help them get the hands-on experience. Yeah. That's one of the things I've found very fascinating about what's occurred over the past year or two is there the people that were so reluctant, like, oh, we can't have people working remote because how are we possibly going to train them now that they've been forced into this situation where they have to do it? Amazingly, they figured it out, right? Always, always. Yeah. So Sam, you've been advocating for telehealth for over a decade now. And when this pandemic hit and suddenly there was this surge of need for telehealth, all of a sudden it seemed like these telehealth gurus just came out of the woodwork. And what was that like for you? Like, what was your initial reaction when all of a sudden everyone was a telehealth expert? Well, I mean, I was like, huh, that's interesting. Um, But I think what's interesting is what we, what I see, especially is that just the explosion of the tech companies, you know, and so then the, the people who sell the tech make themselves a designated expert. But sometimes like when I'm talking to various, you know, tech companies or whatever, I'll ask them like clinically related questions like this would apply to your audience, you know? do you know what a DRG is? They're like, "Mm, no. I'm like, do you know what a diagnosis code is? "Mm, No. I'm like, okay. Like you don't only need expert expertise in telehealth, which if they've only done it for six months, it's less likely they have. But part of the thing that's so important about telehealth is have understanding the full clinical workflows, understanding how does this actually fit into a practice, understanding how do I partner with my coders to make sure that what I'm writing down is acceptable or what do I need extra maybe in my documentation? What are the things that are going to get me dinged and get this you know bill kicked back to me? If you don't know those things and don't understand it, I find that challenging. And so I think yeah, it, it has been interesting, but I get the positive side is I'm glad more people know what I've been doing for the last decade. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Now you don't have to explain yourself as much when you, when you're introduced to someone new and you say, Oh, I do telehealth. Now they kind of understand now what that is. Cause they probably had some kind of video visit with their physician or a friend or family member has. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one thing over the years that has really kind of kept true is that providers have been reluctant to move to telehealth because they're very intimidated by the tech and the gear. And is that still true? And if so, what are some of the tools that can be used to simplify some of this? Yeah, I think it is still true, but the nuance to it now is that the providers talk 
in this way. They say, well, I'm fine with the tech, but it's my patients who can't handle it. And so I'm like, "Mm, maybe, Uh, or as we do training, I'll ask, um, what kind of telehealth are you doing? And they'll say, well, we're doing telephone. And I'll say, do you do video? No, not really, because patients don't want to. Why? Well, they can't figure out the tech, you know. So what's been interesting, right? And you and I are like, hmm, you know, what's been interesting is this shift of, well, I would do video, but since my patients don't want to, I'm not doing it. And then when you actually train them on what it means to do video, simple things like you and I know from being, you know, live streaming or YouTube, it's like, you need a good light, right? If I turn off this light, this looks terrible. This is not going to be an encounter I would have with someone. And so I think some of the tricks, like it sounds silly, but teaching a provider that they should be at eye level and have good lighting is like, oh my God, I had no idea. Um, (laughs) Or also the expectation of, you know, because people say, well, I tried a video, but you know, my patient's in the car or in the grocery store. I'm like, okay, we might also want an expectation that this is like any other patient appointment. Uh, You know, we need you to be somewhere private Um, and simple things, teaching them that, you know, there, if you're on your cell phone, you should have three bars. If you're using Wi-Fi, make sure you have two little radars. So, um, and I think another thing I really uh, encourage providers to do is, you know, they're on a computer of some kind, right? Make it a more stable connection. They could even go old school and plug into the internet like we did in the olden days, you know, which again helps increase your connectivity. And then for patients, I actually encourage patients just being on smartphones because apps are easier. You don't know if your patient has some 50 year old laptop that like, you know, who knows? So some of that is trying to really come down to real basics. And then another real basic is try to encourage your patient, depending on what kind of appointment you're doing, you might actually want to encourage them to get the phone out of their hand and maybe lean it against, you know, a soup can on the, on the coffee table so that they have a better view. I think what's surprising is a lot of the quote unquote tech issues are really just process and workflow issues, mm-hmm. not necessarily tech. I think that is a fun tip about the soup can against the table. I never would have even thought about that, how to hold it up against just kind of like something that you're leaning it against. But I think you're absolutely right. It is, it, it, it is surprising how many patients you see even walking out of clinics and they're FaceTiming their friends on the way out, but the providers are still saying, no, you know, my patients don't know how, how to use this tech. Um, and I think that that is possibly true, maybe in some more uh, rural areas or areas that are a little bit more impoverished. Um, but again, there's just so many programs available right now that I think a lot more patients have access to the technology than they think maybe they do. And I think it's personally been great how there's been some more advocacy now about getting internet access to areas and better Wi-Fi and and access in areas where they've not had uh, stable internet connections because, you know, that's going to absolutely increase some of the health aspects for those patients that are in those slightly more remote areas that maybe have a can't get to a specialist because the specialist is five, six, seven hours away or they don't have a car or someone that can drive them there. But what's, what's the biggest barrier that you have faced in telehealth or just exists in telehealth that you wish you could just snap your fingers and fix it? It's always reimbursement. 
employee's <laughs> reimbursement so, as talking to a coder. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that the initial, you know, reimbursement, What as, you know, your audience would know, what's changed in the reimbursement are these waivers, which from a Medicare standpoint has allowed a video visit from a patient's home. Pre-Medicare is, or pre-pandemic or non-public health emergency, that's not allowed. The audio piece, I think, is great because, you know, pre, pre-pandemic, docs would be like, Sam, I'm not treating people through the telephone. That's not appropriate, you know, and now they're all like audio only better never go away. So again, we've had this giant shift, but if I could change anything, I would um, instantly make at a CMS level, home is an acceptable place of service, which would then allow that to flow to every other payer. I would also, um, I don't think any of us realized like four or five years ago when CMS put in O2 place of service, we didn't realize until the pandemic that that was facility level profies and not clinic level profies. So now if I'm a clinic only, I really am getting paid less and that's not appropriate. So I'd get rid of that. Um, and I would keep audio only, but not in the same way providers are asking for it. I would keep it equivalent to E&M codes or the, you know, video visit kind of acceptable codes when I had no other alternative. And then I would continue to have my virtual check-ins, which are phone codes. So I would, I would nuance that audio only a little bit. Yeah, I think the audio only is a little bit tricky because you don't want providers thinking that anytime that they pick up the phone, it's instantly a billable service. So there is some fine tuning that I think definitely needs to be done in that area. Do you think that telehealth and the increase in telehealth has done anything possibly or could do something possibly for the physician burnout that we've been seeing over the past few years? That maybe if physicians have a couple of days where they can have like a dedicated home office where they just do telehealth visits, that that might improve some of the the stress levels or mental uh, health issues that we've been seeing in our clinicians. We'll be back after a quick break. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind the scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Drs. Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field, we've got something for everyone. Yeah, so this is an area I've been really interested in. And I initially was like, of course it would. And as I start talking to physicians, it's more nuanced than that. Because what they feel is that, I mean, it helps in a sense, but they said, yeah, but Sam, if you just send me home two days a week and I still have to get through 30 patients a day and it's all through video or video and phone, that's not really making me feel any better about my life. Now I've just gone home and trying to push through all these things. So I see it more as a, I think the way it can help and what I've talked with docs about is the nuance of it. So for example, if we look at the full care continuum and care delivery, and we look at what are billable encounters, because, you know, as you know, there were 
email billable, e-consult billable, phone billable in 2018 and 2019, but everyone was too scared to do it. And they all thought I was crazy when I suggested it. But now people think, oh, that came because of the pandemic. It's like, no, man, they were already on the books. It's just people weren't using them. So I see it much more as can we redesign the care care practice, care flow. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I hit the practice and I maybe have, I'm a you know, existing patient, you know, I have a ton of UTI, you know, it's like normal. It's part of my womanly thing. Then how about we have an e-visit, which is an email algorithm to determine, um, can you just put my script in? I'm good to go. So now we've leveraged the provider's time, right? Now we took that UTI, which maybe we would have done as a video or a phone. We made an e-visit, a synchronous interaction. Great. Now we decant that out of the practice. And, and maybe we, we had a new patient who has a UTI, but we want to have a phone conversation and make sure, figure out what is this all about? So then we kick it up to there. So I see it much more. I think we have an opportunity as things reopen to really redesign the care flow, which would allow these various virtual tools to come in different ways. And then I think we can do it. And I absolutely think working from home some portion of the time will be some relief, but it just can't be that it's a straight switch of you saw 30 patients in person and now I send you home and you still see 30 patients. That's not quite the relief they're looking for. Yeah. And I definitely think it's a great idea to have providers focus on the more risky patients, the ones that we know are going to need more attention. And there's so many ways now that we can innovate and just make these processes so much easier, like things like remote remote patient monitoring, that we can have patients check their own blood sugar levels and heart rates and so forth from their own home. And the the provider can keep an eye on it um, as opposed to, you know, bringing them in every three, four months and just asking them questions about how things are going. I think even from a, from that aspect of, you know, one of our ultimate goals in healthcare is keeping patients out of the hospital, right? Because that's the most expensive place that they can go. It's going to be a lot more uh, work involved, a lot more cost to the patient. So anything we can do to prevent patients from getting to the point where they've developed such an exacerbation or have gone on so long that now they're being admitted to the hospital. I think that's really our ultimate end goal is preventative care. Um, so I think telehealth definitely plays a, a huge part in that. What's the biggest myth about telehealth that is just absolutely not true? Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, that's a okay, biggest myth. Um well, I oh yeah. I believe the biggest myth is that Medicaid patients can't do telehealth. That seems to be a yeah. very common myth that is like somewhat the bane of my existence. Being that I have been in this space for a long time and have implemented a variety of different um, programs within all populations, including Medicaid. So, for example, right now I'm working with um, Nurse Family Partnership, which is a national organization. Okay, yeah. And so they do um, they do first time. Uh, low-income first-time moms from Mm -hmm. pregnancy to two years old, and they have a home visit program that they support the nurses or support the clients. Well, needless to say, you know, pandemic came, then they couldn't go into anyone's home. And they came to me because they were having um, nurses weren't feeling engaged and clients weren't following through with appointments. And I said, okay, well, what's going on? Well, we're doing telehealth. Great. What are you doing? 
we're doing telephone. I said, okay, so you went from literally sitting on the couch next to someone to talking to them on the telephone. I'm not surprised it's going that way. And so we've been doing a lot of virtual trainings about how to get clients engaged, how to get on video, how to encourage them. And literally we demo how to play games, how to do, you know, breastfeeding, um, counseling, how to uh, look at a safe sleeping environment in the home. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, so we started first with Colorado before we went nationally. So what was good is we could have good data. Where was Colorado in terms of video visits? And then after the training. So when we started training with them, they were only doing um, about 25% video visits. Within three months of the training, that had gone up to 55%. I mean, that is like fast. And here's the thing. Those are all Medicaid patients, or at least could be on Medicaid. You wouldn't qualify for it if you had an income that would allow you past Medicaid. And so, of course, we had questions about, you know, well, what if they don't have internet or what if they don't have cellular data? But the reality is, there was still enough, you're still gone from 25% to 55%. And that wasn't because they gave those people more technical tools. It was because they spoke in a way that talked about like, oh, cool, you need to download that app. Let me let me show you how, or, oh, I texted you a link. All you have to do is just press it and it opens. And no, you don't have to create account in Zoom or Teams. Just press the button and yeah. enter the meeting invite, right? All these things. Um, and also just saying like, I really want to see you. Like, I want to see how baby's growing. I want to see what's going on. I haven't been able to visit with you. I think people, people discount that the human connection, if you say to someone why you want to see them, it actually works. And that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're poor or rich, you can still be spoken to in a way that encourages you to do it. And the other thing is, I, you know, there's plenty of different levels of income. And just like you said, I see people walking down the street all the time, talking on FaceTime. And I'm like, well, you're, you're not driving a Porsche and you're talking on FaceTime. So I think that that myth for me is, is very frustrating and it continues to be, I believe perpetuated because it's, um, yeah, I think it's an easy one to say is the case. Now, do I believe there are digital literacy issues? Yes, 100%. Um, but I just don't think we could, should be making these kind of blanket statements like Medicaid people can't do telehealth. Yeah, that's I, I love that you brought up the nurse family partnership because I've worked with some of those practices in the past and those nurses that take care of those patients. Um, just some of the most amazing, heartfelt, wonderful people that you could possibly meet. I mean, the, the clinic I worked in within the past, uh, would go out into the community sometimes to meet with, uh, pregnant patients who maybe were in situations where they, they were trying to hide their pregnancy or their partner was abusive and the ways that they just broke down barriers to make sure that these patients got care was phenomenal. So I think that is so amazing to hear that that population is still being served now through technology like telehealth, that they can still get those services that they very, very badly need. need. Um, so thank you, Sam. I think, I think your insight today has just been really so valuable and, and I love what you do. Where can my listeners connect with you online? Yeah. So they can just go directly to my website. It's samlipolis.com. So that's L-I-P-P-O-L-I-S.com. And then on the social media, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, 
Instagram and my handle on those and Clubhouse if you're an audio listener. Uh, my uh, handle on those are Sam I am Lip L I P. So you can find me on those. All right. It was so great having you today, Sam. Thank you again so, so much. And I'll link everything in the description so that everyone can get in contact with you if they need to. Awesome, Victoria. I appreciate it. It's been super fun. All right. Thank you so much.